In April 2018, Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards smiled behind a podium as he announced that Formosa had purchased 2,400 acres in St. James Parish to build a $9.4 billion complex to make the precursor chemicals for manufacturing plastics. The location for the future complex is in a majority black area called Cancer Alley along the Mississippi River. I don't know. Archaeology and history can be part of environmental racism. I think it's no accident that, you know, the same landscapes that we don't value for their history are the ones that we choose to pollute. That's Megan Gannon. She's a science reporter specializing in reporting on archaeological finds. And so when people think of archaeology, it actually covers more ground. (laughs) No pun intended. Uh, But seriously, it does cover a lot more ground. In her November 2020 article for Popular Science magazine, titled, In Louisiana's Cancer Alley, a Black Community Battles, an Industry that Threatens Its Health and History, she investigates how a petrochemical company can impact the health of African-American communities while also potentially wiping out the history of their ancestors by disturbing their unmarked graves before the complex is even constructed. Today, on Dead to Me, Megan and I talk about her most recent article, a weird ancient Roman all-man cult, really. And there's probably going to be a few more archaeology puns. I don't know. I kind of joke with some of my friends that my beat is like, new old bones found. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. So, bad archaeology jokes. Anyway, you've been warned. During college, I kind of had a had a brief flirtation with becoming an archaeologist and, and worked on um, one of my professor's digs for a little while in Cyprus and just became really fascinated with the whole process of, of doing archaeology, but um, wasn't really cut out to be an academic myself. So I, I figured it would be a lot more fun to write about it. So, so yeah, once I became a science journalist years later, I started focusing more on archaeology as a beat. When did you start working as a science journalist? I guess it was around 2012. I started working at uh, Live Science and Space.com. They're kind of two sister science news websites. Um, So it was doing a lot of sort of quick reporting about all the science news coming out that we, you know, in the big journals like Science and Nature, uh, things like that. Um, So yeah, I, I was reporting a lot about like academic archaeology and things coming out in the journals like I don't know I kind of joke with some of my friends that my beat is like new old bones found um, right <laughs> a lot of a lot of reporting on science um in general is kind of um yeah if you're if you're kind of in the churn of that reporting world it's like all the new findings like the researchers said sort of stuff um but the world of archaeology is a lot bigger than that, too. And like with this story, it kind of uh, goes into the world of construction archaeology or like cultural resource management, as they call it, which is actually, uh, I don't know, something like 90 percent of all the digs that happen probably around the world. And a lot of times, you know, they might not find much or they might not frame it in this sort of like big discovery context that you see uh coming out in like the big journals and news stories about big flashy discoveries but there's just a ton of archaeology happening around us all the time that i think yeah people don't really know is going on because it ends up 
kind of in uh, the, these filings <laughs> and federal documents that um, people might not see. Specifically, the story that you wrote about Louisiana's Cancer Alley and how the pitch came to you or how you sort of saw it coming to life. I've just been noticing over the years that over and over there's these cases of um, some, you know, community all over the U.S. There's a lot of communities all over the U.S. who are kind of fighting to protect or trying to clean up or get recognized these abandoned burial grounds, um, specifically like African-American burial grounds. Um, And so I kind of ambiently knew that this was an issue. And last year, uh, a a couple of um, Congress members uh, proposed a law, the African-American Burial Grounds Network, um, which would, it doesn't go as far as a law like NAGPRA, which was the the big landmark law in in 1990 that gave new protections and rights for Native American tribes to kind of, uh, yeah, claim objects that were dug up by archaeologists. Um, And um, it doesn't go as far as that, but it would at least provide some sort of national framework to recognize some of these sites or provide some support for um, putting them into a database or so that at least that they're, I don't know, there's more awareness about where these places are that might be a little bit invisible in the landscape now. Do you think that that was something that was hard to bridge for you or did you see that crossover um innately or was it more of a hook i mean just journalistically speaking you know was it more of a hook or was it just something you saw as like relevant yeah no i saw them as linked because um yeah and in the story i especially wanted to show how uh i don't know archaeology and history can be part of environmental racism i think it's no accident that you know, the same landscapes that we don't value for their history are the ones that we choose to pollute. Um, And also, you know, I I said I was, uh, you know, using my Google alerts to kind of see all these new cases coming in. And so I I had a lot of different sites I was looking at around the country, but this one just had such obvious stakes to it, um, because it's not only that this community is kind of fighting to have their history preserved to, you know, even if the plastics company is going to put a fence around it and uh, not move the graves. They're still going to have to ask a giant plastics corporation for permission to visit them. Um, so e- even if the graves are preserved, uh, yeah, the the stakes are pretty high <laughs> for the community's survival because, um, yeah, as the people I talked to, uh, some of the activists that are working down there told me, um, yeah, it, it's, it doesn't matter if there's a memorial there because the plan is for everyone to either die off or, or move out to make the place unlivable. Um, that's the way they saw it, at least. And so St. James Parish, I used to live in New Orleans. Where is St. James Parish? I was trying to kind of... It's along the Mississippi. So yeah, it's further up toward, it's kind of right in between um, Baton Rouge and uh, New Orleans. And yeah, Cancer Alley kind of spans that whole stretch of the Mississippi. I think St. James had some of the worst rates of uh, COVID death outcomes per capita, um, which, yeah, there was a study that came out earlier this year that kind of linking those, that high rate of bad COVID outcomes to worse respiratory health because of a lot of this environmental racism that um, people are suffering there. So let's talk about the law that requires Formosa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Formosa. So what is the law 
that there's a requirement that these corporations, if they're doing work like this, they have to do an environmental survey, including this archaeological dig. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, during the kind of environmental assessment process, which probably a lot of people are familiar with, you know, you have to accompany, if they're going to do anything to the land, is going to have to investigate some potential environmental impacts. And, you know, in the last few decades, history has kind of become a component of that too, especially if you're working um, on federal land, or if your project requires, I don't know, federal permits, which something like a gigantic plastics facility does. Um, you've got to check out if your construction will impact any archaeological material. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this case, when Formosa did its first investigation, I think that was in 2017, you know, before they did any excavations or anything, um, they didn't think they would actually impact any sites at all. Um, and then it was only a couple of years later when another archaeologist, totally unrelated to the project, kind of gave a tip to the Department of Archaeology in Louisiana, or the Division of Archaeology in Louisiana, sorry, um, that he was looking at some newly available maps online and that there might be some sites that had been missed in this survey. That was an intriguing part of it to me. I'm like, there was a archaeology tip-off at an anonymous source brought this up, that Formosa's own archaeology study may not be all that it seems to be. Now, I I don't suggest that they purposefully go out of their way to give a green light, but it feels like that. It feels like, you, as you said, in 2017, there are people who are like, well, I don't think we're going to impact anything. Do you think that it had more to do with so, these n- new maps? It's hard to say. I mean, it, it could be the maps. And it's also, you know, just these sites are so difficult to find generally that's part of the problem and part of why they've been neglected or they might be missed in surveys like this um, because you know they they weren't recorded on official maps when there were plantation owners there with slaves they they had you know designated burial areas for slaves but they wouldn't you know record it on their official maps so the only thing kind of marking where these sites might be today is like a clump of trees that farmers for decades and centuries have just known to avoid for some reason and maybe they don't know why anymore but it's because that was an area that's been avoided because there's graves there so yeah i think just by design these sites are not in the landscape and they're really tough to find and so you have to rely on archival records but you also have to have a really sophisticated understanding of how these archival records work and Beyond that, you know, you might have to look into oral history and see if there's been any stories passed down between generations or if people know about where their ancestors might be buried. Um, Or you could use some other kind of scientific methods like cadaver dogs um, or things like that to look for sites. Do you think they did due diligence then as far as the oral history goes? Some of the activists, it seems like one of the women that you spoke to most was led to the burial ground possibility or the possibility that there was a burial ground there because of her concern over, you know, living in Cancer Alley and it's going to be two miles away from me. So there's so much science that goes on and you just mentioned oral history and I'm wondering how much that weighs into an initial survey like this. I don't really have a sense. I know, I mean, 
there was that more thorough independent report that was commissioned by um, the lawyers representing these activists. And I don't think they really relied that much on oral history in this case, or I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that they used that here. Why did the activists have to have lawyers sue for a, or essentially sue for another survey when Formosa, it seems, should be on the hook for that cash? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's kind of complicated. This like time on, uh, of events of, uh, you know, various different surveys coming in. So after this tip came in about, hey, there might be graves here that you missed uh, in, in your initial assessment, they hired another company that came in and did a survey and they actually did an excavation and didn't find anything and said, if there was something here, it was probably destroyed already. And then the same anonymous tipster came in and said, hey, you might not be looking at the right spot here <laughs> um, because, you know, some of these maps that we're looking at have to be adjusted for the right sort of longitude and latitude and things like that. And the company that Formosa had hired went back and did another excavation. And that's when they found four burials um, in, in one plantation's uh, old plot and in the Buena Vista plantation's old plot of land. So that, that excavation and that discovery happened in the summer of 2019, last summer. But that wasn't really public knowledge, at least widely, until the end of the year when um, the activists uh, from Rise St. James and, and their partners helping them kind of filed the Freedom of Information request. Through a public records request, they were able to see that, yeah, these graves were discovered. But at that time, uh, Formosa and the archaeologists working there were only required to report the discovery to law enforcement, yeah, which has to happen anytime you find human remains and the Division of Archaeology. Whoa. Okay, so hang on a second. <laughs> when I think of local law enforcement and Louisiana, I think, holy shit, is it a sheriff's department? Is it, do you know? I believe it was the local sheriff's department. Yeah, some things I didn't include in this story. I mean, I was trying to make it more of an archaeology story, but it, there's been just a bad interactions with law enforcement that some of these activists had had. Uh, like two of the members of Rise St. James were arrested, uh, the, I think, either the day of or just right around the time that they were able to hold their Juneteenth ceremony uh, because of some charge. Uh, there was a warrant out for their arrest on charges of terrorism or terrorizing um, for leaving uh, like a note like they were leaving notes and boxes of plastic um, pellets, like the kind that end up in bodies of water from uh, certain plastics manufacturers. They, they left something like that um, on like a, a plastic, a petrochemical lobbyist's doorstep um, and then got hit with charges of terrorizing for that and were potentially facing up to 15 years in prison. You know what? I have so much to say about that, but I will leave that for another day because it's just, yeah, when you said report to the policing agencies, I'm like, oi. I know I just did a very short podcast about sheriffs and how they aren't, they have no oversight. Anytime you involve a sheriff's department, or obviously there's a lot of issues with legal, you know, law enforcement agencies, but sheriffs in particular are renowned for for just being able to run unchecked 
the intercept has done some good reporting on that and yeah i'm not sure what's happening exactly with that case now um but yeah they've they've kind of been on this case uh and kind of reporting the different developments and and obviously it's a lot of the local papers too like the advocate so you spoke a bit about the the 2019 legislation or at least a conversation in the US house about a bill to establish the African American burial grounds networks within National Park Service. Do you know the status of that or do you? It's still just pending. I think it's only been at the stage of being introduced. And the people I spoke to who are kind of working on it behind the scenes kind of said, yeah, it's hard to predict when it might get taken up, especially this year when uh, with the pandemic and there's um, yeah, a, a lot of other pressing things to discuss in Congress right now. Yep. I I agree. Um, so yeah, no, no, um, no projection on when, when that might get passed. Right. Well, yeah. And I think, yeah, it's going to be a hard, well, you know what? You never know if we can get something done with this um, pandemic. It should be an easy sell, I think, because even, you know, it, it, I think it's an easy sell to even developers because they obviously don't want things like this to happen. They don't want to create, I don't know, have these conflicts come up and these things be a surprise. And and like I said, a lot of these sites are sort of hidden in the landscape. So even, you know, if you do your due diligence, you could still miss a site like this. And you talk about outside of the South as well. And that's important to remember. And while there's a certain amount of protection for the Native American repatriation stuff, you cited um, like some places in New York and other other places. I have to, mm-hmm. I have to imagine that it is hard to not trod on some bones. And I think that what you're trying to do with this, or what I'm reading from this piece, is that there's a significance to bones when it's bones of the enslaved as far as making sure that it's a part of our history as an as a nation their history as a you know their right to their their history how many digs are going on right now to figure out if so and so can build on whatever land do you have any sense i have no sense and yeah this is something i was asking a lot of sources because it, it's hard to talk about a national issue that you can't really quantify. And that's, yeah, it's kind of a a circular problem here because the reason we need something like a a burial grounds network or a database is because we don't know how big the problem is, but we, we know it's like these sites are in almost every state. I mean, when I was talking to people who are working on the bill, they, they had lists of, I don't know, each state that with the different examples of sites that so they, you know, if they were approaching different members of Congress about the bill, they'd have examples to use. So it, it's something that's relevant all over. Um, but yeah, it's really hard to quantify without some sort of national database about these sites. Right. And I mean, is that, is it going to be, a, will that be a heavy lift? I mean, once, once, Let's just say everything goes great and that, like you said, the corporations are going to be on board with something like this so they won't have these sort of surprises. Do you think it'll be a heavy lift to incorporate that stuff into databases and would that that live under like an existing federal agency? 
Yeah, it, it's hard to tell. I think it's going to be really difficult to get something like that where it's big and comprehensive enough, but also like detailed enough at the local level that it's helpful to developers, mm -hmm. you know, trying to build in a, in a specific area. So yeah, that's the challenge. But I hope at least the bill is making a little bit more national awareness about, about it in general. I think it's hard to break through with, um, you pointed to local media doing work, Intercept doing work, some of these other places being able to do work, but being able to find the wherewithal in a national sense to raise awareness or to um, push some of this, uh, I mean, in the next two years even, you know, finding finding that space to be able to do reporting, like doing doing um, proper reporting in the national media that gets amplified to, you have to raise awareness first beyond, say, Louisiana or wherever the case may be. You have to raise awareness of, of all of these things. I don't know how we're going to do that as journalists in this media environment. For your piece, it's this, what is it, like, some crazy amount of words and <laughs> I think it was almost 3000. Yeah. But uh, you don't want to know how long of a first draft. was. <laughs> I wonder if there's going to be bandwidth within the American, at least in the context of the United States, if there's going to be bandwidth to, to find that reserve of activism for these sites. And if it can be something that is part of the larger, a larger cultural shift I don't know if you have any sense of what what activists are doing to try to raise that or. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I pitched the story for Popular Science's winter issue because, you know, kind of in response to the pandemic happening and um, the Black Lives Matter protests happening in the country, mm -hmm. they decided to, I forget what their original theme that they had planned was uh, for the winter, but they switched it to thrive. And so it's all about finding solution for a lot of these cracks that have been exposed by um, yeah, a lot of the upheavals that have happened in the country in the last year. Um, and so, yeah, this is, yeah. So I was hoping to kind of raise awareness about that. I thought it was a good time to, you know, it, it's hard because yeah, like I said, a lot of these efforts are happening at the community level, but I thought it was a good time to kind of grab people's interest about how it's a national problem. Mm -hmm. Is, especially you, when oh sorry go ahead. no go ahead especially when what no just like I don't know there, there's been so much discussion about like what do we do with these confederate monuments and things like that um which yeah you, you find out that a lot of states are supporting the maintenance of or states and municipalities are supporting the maintenance of uh confederate cemeteries um mm -hmm. and yet not doing much research into accounting for these like abandoned neglected and unrecorded cemeteries uh, that yeah, they have. That I'm sure that's just an oversight. Also part of their heritage and history. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's, it's been very interesting to see how, you know, this administration isn't, isn't the beginning of the problem, right? It's mm -hmm. like, it's, it's exposed it for what it is. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, my hope is like what you said, sort of when you, when you pitched it on the, the heels of, you know, black lives matter and really getting some, some traction um, and the importance of history, because you bring up the, 
um, Confederate monuments and all that stuff and how it is for white people to, you know, hold up their history Mm -hmm. as important, but nobody else's history is important. Um, and I think Formosa offering to, um, build a fence around something and, uh, then have people ask for access is just like a slap in the face right it sends it sends a certain type of message and even if that is you know legally all they'd be required to do because um the archaeologists who surveyed the site for them and then um the the local shippo like the um the state historic preservation office um concurred that you know this wasn't a site worth putting on the national register of historic places um, so yeah, that, that's why it, something like that wouldn't require much more than like putting a plaque there or putting a fence up or, mm-hmm. um, memorializing in any sort of special way. So it's, there's, if, if by some miracle they're like, well, we will relocate this. Are there even sites to relocate these kinds of fines? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there might be, but still the act of you know, exhuming the bodies and then reburying them, I think was pretty offensive to, yeah, the activists sure. involved with Rise. Yeah. Um, they, they didn't want to see that happening, which, yeah, is totally, totally understandable. This idea in, in your article where you quote somebody about respecting the dead, sometimes respecting the dead is leaving them be. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of some Native Americans, it's returning those ancestors. I guess it's up to the community. Ideally, it is. And, and yeah, the thing about the, the laws that allow Native Americans more control in deciding what happens to the remains of their ancestors um, is about control and empowerment. And in this case, the, the community feels like they don't have a control or, or say in what happens to these graves. So yeah, and, and I'm not sure that the the African-American burial ground network uh, law that was proposed would fix that because it's not, you know, mandating that some community group gets put in charge, you know, if there's a grave like this discovered during a construction project, um, so maybe something like that, something more serious like that is needed in the future. Do you, are you going to be working on this going, going forward? Do you see this as part of more work that you want to do or I definitely want to write more about yeah how archaeology factors into the planning process um so yeah I'd like to write a lot more about that and earlier this year I also reported a story in London um where I was writing about the commercial archaeology sector there where they have this big banner dig happening for like their this giant railway project that's supposed to go through the whole, whole of the UK um, and so they're doing a lot of archaeological work along the train tunnels, um, kind of, yeah, as part of their like man- mandated digs. Um, and they've really done a good job of marketing all these finds and all these cool things that are happening with archaeology. And so, yeah, my point in doing that story was to kind of dig a little bit under the surface of the, the media messaging there. And <laughs> I know it, it lends itself too well to bad pun um but and to talk to people who were maybe a little bit skeptical of some of the the whitewashing that 
cool archaeological finds and discoveries could do for a project as controversial as this rail line, which was, you know, displacing a lot of working class communities in London um, and making way for these big fancy new developments. And now the project might get scrapped entirely uh, because it was kind of very unpopular and the costs were just like really out of control. I had to double check the figure. I think they projected, you know, over the few decades that it was going to happen, that it was going to cost like over a hundred billion pounds or something, which yeah, high-speed rail would be great. But if it's only, if it's like a short line, that's only shaving a half hour off your commute from Birmingham to London, then is it really worth the cost? Right. And, and like to your point, you know, displacing. Right. And yeah, and so I was kind of, I was looking at a lot of uh, places around London, like in the new headquarters of the Bloomberg office, they have um, this Roman ruin that had been dug up, I think in the 60s, and then it was sort of botched in a reconstruction and they've, they've done their own fancy new reconstruction where you have to reserve a time online to go and you can walk down into this Roman temple and they turn all the lights off and then they start pumping in mist and the lights come on a little bit and there's Roman chanting. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a pretty cool experience, but like it, yeah, it, I don't know, this whole world of archeology span as annoying thing that you have to do for compliance and building, but also like great marketing opportunity kind of fascinates me. But that's at the Bloomberg headquarters? Yeah, in London. That's what I find so weird about it. <laughs> Yeah, and then I also saw a building in Shoreditch that was like new luxury apartments. Um, it was like, I don't know, in the marketing material, it was like new luxury apartments, but also like Shoreditch's first World Heritage site. Though They were kind of incorporating some <laughs> archaeology oh into their lobby. Um, oh <laughs> so yeah, just as a journalist who I'm, you know, I'm genuinely fascinated by these new things that archaeologists are able to turn up and a lot of times these construction projects enable that, but I have to kind of be aware of if I'm being complicit in some kind of marketing narrative when, um, yeah. I mean, God, I think about when you were talking about the Roman ruins, um, I just, all I could think about was Baspa. It was also ruins for a temple that was only for men. Um, it was like a strange cult for men to join. Um, and so it was something about that being in like the, in like the heart of the financial district of London was very strange and unnerving. And if I was more conspiracy minded, I might <laughs> have some weird feelings coming out of that. But I think it also, that could be contemporary, right? I right, mean, that's yeah. some strange cult for, for men only. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking like, yeah, a few floors up, probably the same kind of thing is going on upstairs in Bloomberg. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to be um, looking into some more of this stuff down the road. I guess we have to wait till February to see what happens in Louisiana, sort of. Um, yeah, we'll see. They did just have like a new victory, which I was able to add into the end of the online piece, at least um, with that. Um, well, a sort of victory, like a, a, a pause. Um, they, so one of their lawsuits was against the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, mm -hmm. which was one of the agencies that gave a permit to Formosa. Oh and um, yeah, uh, Rise St. James and Louisiana Bucket Brigade, Center for Biological Diversity, and I think a few other organizations had sued them, saying that they wrongfully gave them the permit and that 
foremost, it was going to be in violation of the Clean Water Act and um, also hadn't properly documented the, the history of the site. Um, and so, yeah, there was a court deadline coming up for the Army Corps to defend its permit. And rather than defending it, they paused the, or they suspended Formosa's permit. And yeah, maybe that just kind of kicks the can down the road a little bit. Mm -hmm. So there'll be a future decision about whether it's going to be totally revoked or if they're going to make some modifications to it or ask Formosa to change some things about its uh, construction plan. Um, so we'll, we'll see. It, they didn't give me any timeline about when that might happen. I mean, the Army Corps is already, after Katrina, they are not beloved in Louisiana generally because of the deep corruption in Army Corps of Engineers. Just from right. my own reporting years ago about the failures of the levees in, after Katrina, it's, it's a very problematic governmental body. And again, it's not surprising. I mean, obviously they would have to be involved in that project, but to me, it's just like, of course, Louisiana, Army Corps of Engineers, if I were more conspiratorially minded, how <laughs> that fits into, you know, what happened in New Orleans, which was just, yeah. you know, shit. And yeah. that was something that people knew about forever in New Orleans and could mm -hmm. not get anything done about. Right. Yeah, and they're in charge of yeah the waterways, and this, this since this project was coming right up to the Mississippi, yeah, that's why they were involved in the permitting for this. Want to report more stories like this one? I mean, one of the archaeologists I spoke to, I think I quoted him on this in the piece, but he said, you know, if there was a reporter in every city dedicated to researching its cemeteries that might not be marked, they'd, they'd be finding tons of these. I, I mean, there was um reporter in Tampa who was doing exactly that and finding a ton of sites in Tampa um, for the Tampa Bay Times. Um, so yeah, I would love to, I don't know, have a staff writer's salary or, or some big grant. Yeah, look at look at a lot of sites uh, around the U.S. and yeah, kind of dig through a lot of public records and talk to some local archaeologists and local historians and see, see what I find because there's just a lot of like untapped stories um, yeah in this archaeology work that's going on all the time that people might not know about. Oh actually if I could mention one more thing as sort of like an epilogue that yeah this is just something I didn't get to include in the story for space but just something I found sort of interesting is that there's a site a bit further down the Mississippi, more towards Louisiana, uh, more towards New Orleans, um, called the the Whitney Plantation, and so Formosa had bought that plot of land in the '90s, thinking they were going to build like the world's biggest rayon uh, maker, <laughs> and then they were holding on to it for a while. Uh, some there were some like local activist opposition at that time because of the site's importance. You know that it was on this old plantation. Um, but Formosa ended up just selling the land anyway, um, you know, in the, uh, I forget when they sold it, but demand for rayon, rayon had dropped, unsurprisingly, maybe. And they sold the land and this rich white lawyer from New Orleans bought it. And he, in the last several years, has been developing this museum that's kind of been billed as like the first, um, like dedicated museum to slavery in the US. I mean, uh, there's a lot of museums and like even just in this local area that cover that topic. Um, 
but yeah, it, it's it looks like a pretty amazing space. I you know I didn't get to go there during my reporting because pandemic, <laughs> but it's just kind of I don't know a sort of like I don't know sort of a strange parallel to the situation that like the demand for these things is temporary, and even if you're looking back into the history of um, slavery, you know what was being produced at these sites was sugar, and like the demand for sugar in the US and around the world is so high. Um, yeah, and I just, you know, it was hard for me to like look at like a plastic bag or like a plastic bottle in my home and not think about how I'm I'm sort of like we're all kind of connected to this story as well. Um with like yeah, big giant factories like this being produced because of the demand that we're creating.